Okay, and welcome to episode 18 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I'm welcoming back um, Professor Kevin Tipton from the University of Stirling. I know that you'll all um, remember Kevin well because we had him and uh, Professor Stu Phillips on... uh, uh, Kevin, how, I mean, that was only a couple of months ago, but it seems like ages ago on these on these podcasts. But I think it was um, it was about six, seven weeks ago, maybe more than that. I don't know. But uh, anyway, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So protein is such a big topic um, that not only can we not do it justice in one podcast, I think it's fair to say that uh, the likes of you spend enormous amounts of time, uh, and we're not even talking years, we're talking decades on this topic. So I think to, you know, to say that, you, you know, that the, the topic can be covered adequately in a 45 minute podcast or in a chapter in a book is is ridiculous. So the reason why I wanted to bring you back is there's always more thoughts and ideas and questions that keep coming up on, on protein. And I'm sure we'll have you and and others back on again in the future but um i felt that it was worth us getting back into protein so uh so again thank you for coming i know everyone knows knows who you are by now um so let's just kick straight into some basic uh sort of questions and concepts that 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 come up having done this podcast um I've started to receive a number of questions via email or uh, via Twitter and so on. And uh, for the most part, it's all been wonderful and positive. But sometimes I think what we're seeing is quite a bit of confusion. And one of the areas um, that I want to get back into is this business of protein need. How much protein do we we actually need? Uh, Unlike the topics of, say, fats and carbohydrates where... Everyone largely associates those one way or the other as being super negative. You know, carbs carbs will kill you. Uh, in fact, I came across uh, a podcast that was called Carbs Will Kill, if you can believe that, which is uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of silly. Um, but, you know, we do associate in our society and a lot of professionals do think of, you know, throw out carbs as being bad, which we know my very last podcast with Dr. James Morton, I think we covered that well. It's all about context, of course. Uh, fats, uh, we've got decades of people thinking negatively about fats. And of course, we know that's not necessarily the case. But protein's got a, I think we've got a different relationship to that. But one thing that, that, that does tend to get thrown around is this idea of more protein, the better, which I wanted to address, because I know that's not necessarily the case. Uh, but also, you know, all the problems that can be associated with protein consumption, and people talk about um, you know whether or not it causes kidney dysfunction, or renal disease. Uh, it's bad for kids. Um, and something I've received a number of emails um, uh, from people with concerns with high protein turning into uh, blood glucose and that sort of thing. So, do you want to just quickly take us through this idea that that uh, you know our protein needs are and maybe not so static, and there are different sort of areas there. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, again, I've written several times that I really, as far as athletes go anyway, and exercisers, that talking about protein requirements, I think, is a waste of time. Because when you say requirement, if you're, I suppose it's semantics, but most people talk about requirements that's based on nitrogen balance, it's based on the amount of protein necessary to, uh, uh, you know, exist, basically. 
So, so requirements, I think, to me is the wrong word, and what we really want to talk about is recommendations. And when you talk about recommendations, I think that it's a huge mistake to to lump people into some category of athlete, whether it's resistance exercise, strength trainers, or endurance exercise, and say that this group needs 1.47 grams per kilo, and this group needs 1.63 grams per kilo, and everybody in that particular category needs this amount of protein because it's going to vary by the type of athlete, the season, you know, whether the athlete's in the competitive season or what the goals of the athlete are. Uh, all those kind of things will, will combine to make a, a, a pretty unique and particular um, recommendation for that particular athlete necessary. And so I think it's a it's a big disservice to try to attempt to say all these athletes, even if you bring it down to a particular sport, you know, all runners need to have this much protein in their diet. I think that that is a, a huge disservice and the challenge for nutrition professionals is to come up with ways to try to hone in more specifically for that individual athlete on, at that particular time of the year etc to to come up with the recommendations that they need yeah i mean it's it is a speaking as a practitioner i i mean it is difficult because of course someone sits in your office or you're with a you know an athlete in a team setting or whatever and of course you you do you do get into the scenario where you've got to give people an idea of how much to eat but it's that idea of how much that i think gets taken um sort of out of you know sort of out of the realms of what is is realistic and practical and of course as you mentioned you've got some people that are going right well uh you know you weigh uh 200 pounds therefore uh, you need a minimum of uh you know one pound you know one gram per pound of body weight and they start getting out their calculators and start working out and of course that you know i mean there's something to that but of course that can overcomplicate issues well on the other hand not having any idea at all um, you know, can can be an issue, but of course, there's ways around that. If you can establish baselines with people, and and uh, based on um, you know uh, parameters such as body composition or weight or, or whatever, you can then determine periodically. You see them say every two to four weeks. You can tell them whether they should be upping or or reducing their their, their protein needs. But if we can accept that, yes, we don't necessarily need to be extremely uh, you know, uh, sort of over the top with specifics in terms of grams or, or whatever. I mean, do you think that there is a a way that we should be approaching um, an understanding of what our protein needs should be from a pragmatic point of view? I suppose so. Uh, you you know, you can start with some of these grams per kilogram figures that people throw around and recommend. And maybe that's a you, you know you use a starting point of say 1.5 grams per kilo, and then you go from there for that athlete and try to try to go either up or down depending on their energy needs. Like you say, whether or not they're going to be deciding carbohydrates are evil, um, you know, and, and how much carbs are going to have in their diet at that particular time. And you know, some of James's work where you might want it more or less in some periods versus others. So you you adapt your protein needs accordingly and. I think that yes, you can use as a starting point somewhere in there, depending on what your 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 uh, goals of for that athlete 
are. That would be the way I would approach it. And and I would also, I've said this many times, is start with a first do no harm type of a philosophy where you say, okay, what am if I go to two grams per kilo for this athlete, am I going to hurt that athlete? Am I going to hurt that athlete's health? Am I going to hurt that athlete's training adaptations? Am I going to hurt that athlete's performance, etc.? If not, then you can say, you know, okay, I'm going to try this and see what happens, or or maybe this is better at this time of year and this is better at this time of year. I think it has to be adjusted. I think it has to be constant kind of, if, if you really want to get into the types of of detail that I think so many people are trying to do, well, then you can't just say one amount is the same for everybody and all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, <clears throat> a, a theme that perpetuates pretty much every podcast now is uh, not only the idea of context, but also into individual variability. And of course, there is just vast amounts of differences between different people and what their needs are. And that is that is true to almost anything that we could discuss. And protein is, is certainly one of them. I think something that was really interesting to me when I heard you and Stu, Stu Phillips lecturing to us, and, and I think Lee Breen also touched on to this when he was on an, uh, with us on another time talking about protein needs for aging populations, was this idea that, um, you know, the, the, the longer you've been training, so perhaps the more developed your muscle mass is, the more the more you've been um, augmenting one's diet with protein and the more you've been lifting and all that sort of thing. And I'm talking years and years, not weeks or months. There is a scenario that can occur um, that I'd love you to describe a bit, which is this idea that, that we maybe get more efficient at utilizing protein. And of course... It, it, uh, in the same way that remodeling a house that's already built is not the same thing as starting from scratch. So, of course, you don't need as many of the raw materials. And, and don't forget, it, you know, in our industry, and it may be a bit of an Americanism, uh, which is, you know, more is better. Uh, you know, we just start shoveling in, inhaling protein, and uh, that will somehow, somehow be a good thing. But I think it's worth discussing a bit this idea that, that we actually do get more efficient at utilizing protein, or is, or is that not the case? Oh, sure. Blame it on the Americans. <laughs> well, I only lived there for 10 years. I can't, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you've escaped over this way. So That's uh, right. I'm, I'm assuming you've defected. We've taken you back. <laughs> um, right. Um, yeah, th- th- there, there is definitely evidence for that, that concept of, of, the more you train, the more efficient you get at utilizing protein. Now, we know for sure on an, on an acute basis that that's true. If you, in the studies that we do with protein census and, and in other types of situations, you definitely see a greater utilization of the protein if you're following exercise versus resting muscle. We also see Lee Breen's study uh, recently showed that if you, and, and bed rest studies are the extreme kind of situation or, or Stu did a casting study and Luke Van Loan's done some casting studies showing that, you know, once you don't use your muscles for exercise, your ability to utilize the protein goes down. On the other hand, if you're training, it seems that yes, you become more efficient at that. And there was a good study, uh, you know, it was out of Stu's lab by Joe Hartman, uh, quite a few years ago showing that, that, 
as people train, they, they actually, on the same amount of protein, they, they have a better nitrogen balance was in that particular study. So that suggests that they're, they're better at utilizing the protein that's being consumed. Now, the, you know, this concept has been around for quite a long time. There were some studies from Gail Butterfield's lab in the 80s that, that were suggesting that exercise and training actually enhances the utilization of the protein. And in fact, the people that argue that, you, that athletes don't need more protein than people who don't exercise, that's one of the main, uh, the, the origin of that comes from some of those studies done back in the 80s. But the general concept of acutely exercise enhances the utilization of the protein, and it seems that also you're better at it with training. So the argument then becomes to gain a certain amount of muscle you need to eat less protein, and that flies in the face of I'm I'm training harder, or I've been training for a long time, so I need more protein. So, so I think you got to keep those kind of things in mind if you're going to talk to people about what their protein needs are. Now, that's not to say that we, you know, one of the things that we don't know for sure is we think it's true, and the study that uh, that Stu and I uh, and and our other colleagues, uh, Dan Moore and Ollie Wittard, put together a retrospective type of a study suggests that larger guys do need more protein. So, so if you're training harder, you get bigger, maybe you need a little bit of more protein. So again, you put all that together and you see that it's com- it, it, the complexities of this, it's not so simple as just saying, I'm training, I need two grams per kilo. It's all in your favorite word, context. Yeah, no, Absolutely. So, I mean, as you're saying that, there's a couple of things I I wanted to explore. Uh, One of which uh, definitely we'll get into in a bit is is this idea of um, what actually constitutes a good or bad protein study, if if one can simplistically look at it that way. Uh, Because, of course, for those of us that do actually look at papers and read studies and so on, the biggest mistake you can make is just assuming that the conclusions of of that paper or study is, is fact. It isn't. You've got to look at you know, the, uh, the, the, the methods and so on. And I know it's something you're passionate about is uh, the, uh, the need to critically appraise studies and papers properly. So I'd like Absolutely. to, I'd love to get into that as it relates to protein studies in particular in a second. But, you know, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that there are people who, who like to look at this from another perspective, which is, okay, well, we're not necessarily looking at protein intake purely from a muscle protein synthesis point of view or, for a, uh, even necessarily uh, from a, an athletic perspective, but it, it's it's the other things that protein can do. Is it a you know does it is it something we can use as a tool to bulk out a meal from the perspective of satiety? Um, you know what are the, imp- the what are the impacts that that has on various hormonal responses like uh, potentially insulin or um, leptin, ghrelin, that sort of thing. Um, you know, is there any harm in that? Uh, I've certainly, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've, I think it was off air, I've certainly had a number of people who, who tend to come from a more dietetic or medical background uh, have concerns about when we talk about high protein or increased protein intake, uh, they'll often think of the risk of an excess amount of protein, whatever that is, uh, and that becoming um, a situation that can be turned into excess you know, glucose and then can lead to metabolic disorders. So, you know, when we talk about high protein studies or increasing protein beyond what is needed specifically for muscle protein synthesis, I mean, what, you know, what are the, 
So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, as you suggest, there, there are a lot of uh, functions of protein in the diet, and, and muscle mass is not the only function by any means. Um, gaining muscle proteins is not only about muscle mass, it's other proteins and adaptations as well. So, you know, there have been a couple of recent papers on uh, adaptations to endurance exercise and why you need protein, etc. And, of course, enzymes are proteins, so you're going to have to have amino acids to 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 help build those but you know you do you reutilize the pro, the amino acids in your body protein so it's all it's all again it's somewhat complex now once you've eaten a certain amount of protein what happens to the excess i think is what you're asking the first thing i would comment on is the notion of toxicity the the issue there i think from what i can tell and i'm not a clinician so you know i need to be put that out there is but from all the literature I've been able to say, if you're a healthy person, that there's a huge amount of protein that your body can can handle without any sort of toxicity, and that is on the, the level of kidney damage, for example. Now, that being said, it's possible that somebody could have a, a, have a subclinical issue, a kidney issue, that they don't know about, and that they eat a high amount of protein, it could put them over the top and put them into big trouble. So... You know, it's not to say that I'm not saying you have a license to eat as much protein as you think you can, but as so, but in general, most people, it's not it's not a danger. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. And and Stu, I think Stu Phillips has written this probably better than anybody over the last couple of years. Is if uh, you know he's written some some good uh, things on that, including one on Twitter. Um, for that, he uses that Twitter Plus, I think, effectively sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then on bones, again, it's it's overblown. Uh, those the the bone issue is based primarily seems to be on epidemiological type studies with people who eat high protein, and and then the 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 physiological basis of it is high acid levels in the blood. But anybody that's eating sort of a, a reasonable diet with fruits and vegetables, et cetera, is going to keep that down. And there's no real evidence of bone loss. And in fact, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. A major part of bone is protein. You know, the, the the matrix of bone is protein. And in fact, Mike Rennie's group did some studies showing that bone protein does respond to protein intake. So, so you know, there's an argument for having your bones need a certain amount of protein. Now, do they need 500 grams a day? Uh, you know, I'm fairly certain that that wouldn't be true. But will that hurt the bones? I can't say for sure it doesn't, but Right now, I don't think there's a lot of convincing evidence that it does. It, well, I mean, those types of levels haven't been actually examined, so it's very difficult to say. But for, from that clinical perspective, uh, and then you also asked about what glucose. Yeah, I mean the one. Yeah, because that's an area that I do because you know how people oversimplify stuff, and a lot of that is just because they haven't got enough education on the topic, but. Uh, there's this relationship between protein and uh, insulin and of course people start going oh my god the insulin word so therefore uh, that means uh, instant diabetes or uh, uh, insulin resistance or whatever and they sort of you know join the dots there so um, perhaps you could elucidate us a bit on on protein and insulin or protein and glucose well okay those are sort of two two related questions but first one the protein and, and insulin i always get a kick out of that because People who think insulin is evil um, will tell you to eat protein, but protein stimulates insulin. Like whey protein is a huge stimulator of insulin. In fact, there's one uh, you know clinical 
kind of bent that's done some studies on on eating protein, eating amino acids with the express in for diabetics to expressly stimulate insulin production. So, you know, that whole thing of, oh, I want to eat protein so I can keep my insulin down, that's just stupid. Mm. Well, now if it's part of a diet, that then that's all relative because it depends on the the you know, the composition of the diet, whether you're going to get these insulin spikes or not. And and as to whether those are bad or not, I think you got it for healthy people, I think is debatable. So, but uh, so from the glucose standpoint, there's no question that if you eat a large amount of protein, either acutely in a single setting or over a long period of time, that you're going to first of all see an elevated urea production. And we showed that in a study we published this in, within the past year. Ollie Wittard was the first author. And we gave different doses of protein and we, we measured uh, urea production and we saw a definite increase once you got up in the high amounts, like around 40 grams. For, and these were sort of average of 80 kilo guys, as, as in a lot of our studies. Um, so that suggests that you are breaking down the excess protein that you're eating and, and then using those carbon skeletons for other things. Uh, now, what that is probably depends on the metabolic and nutrition overall situation of that person. We, we measured it acutely, so you can't say. Um, we do know from other studies that if you – and Ollie did another study with his, part of his PhD, which was published in, I think, 2010 maybe. We fed guys uh, three grams per kilo, and these were cyclists. And by the way, on one of your podcasts, somebody said it was two. It was three. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh and it's a very high amount for cyclists, obviously. And we saw, again, very high productions of urea. Well, we saw high urea levels in the blood. We assume it was production. And, and so, we're, you know, a lot of that protein is being then the amino acids, the amino group is being taken away, made into urea to get rid of the nitrogen. And then the other, what, what happens to that other uh, carbon skeletons is, is debatable. Now, what you don't see really is increased really high glucose levels in the blood because your body's very good at controlling glucose levels. Now we think in the in the cyclists that a lot of that protein that was made into glucose probably went into glycogen. And we think that that might be one of the reasons that the cyclists on the higher protein didn't suffer so much from this. We, we put them through this really, really high training for a week and they their time trial performance went down, but in the higher protein group it didn't go down quite as much. And we think maybe that's why, and we'd love to do that study to see if they actually are getting increased glycogen levels with this. Um, but so, yes, you are going to produce glucose. There's no question. Other studies have shown in other situations that on a high-protein diet, you will see gluconeogenesis or making new glucose from that protein. In starvation, that's what you do. You break down protein in the body to make glucose because it's very critical to, you know, for brain uh, energy use, etc. So, so it's all connected. There's no question. You're going to make the glucose, but I don't think, again, depending on certain other factors, that it's going to be dangerous for most people. And I, and I certainly don't, I don't really see where a higher protein intake, and I'm sure there's an upper limit on that somewhere that I don't know what it is, but a higher protein intake is going to result in sort of problems with blood glucose and diabetes, I, I don't really think there's any evidence for that. I can't see how that could come around. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I've looked into this quite a bit and I think it's, I mean, a lot of this just boils down to, uh, you know, there's, there's one way of looking at this for people 
that are very metabolically healthy. Uh, of course, people that exercise, um, I mean, exercise seems to be a very powerful modulator of all good things, doesn't it? It's, a, it's an exceptional medicine in itself therapeutically. And, and if you're doing things with, and not exercising, of course, we're all supposed to exercise. We're all supposed, we're designed to be physically active. So therefore doing things um, that we're not designed to, to do or in an environment that we weren't supposed, you know, designed to be in, you shouldn't be surprised to have problems. So, uh, but it is a, it is one of those sort of myths, uh, I think that, that, that is worth discussing. But um, I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll need to come back to that topic again when we know a bit more. But uh, I think, the average listener with no health problems really shouldn't be worrying about uh, protein and, and glucose. But like you say, it is a bit of a joke, um, this business of uh, controlling insulin with protein when it, it's a massive stimulator of insulin. But of course, people don't understand insulin. In fact, I'll have to get some, I think I'm going to get someone on just to talk about insulin. That'll be a, that'll be an interesting one. So let's, let's just move away well, from that. Just yeah. in that, just to, yeah. to say the extreme, I got an email the other day from, Someone who, you know, apparently a lot of people think that I'm I'm a free consultant for their, you know, muscle gains. So I get emails. Oh, you too. I'm on the same. I'm on right. the same club. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they, you know, so I got an email from someone, and he he was asking. I think it was a he. Um, say, you know, I wanted to get bigger, of course, and and what does he do? And he said, should I should I take insulin before my workout? <laughs> now I normally ignore those emails, but in that one, I felt I needed to say no. You'll kill yourself, yeah. you know. So insulin can be a very dangerous drug for your listeners out there. Anyone, you know, we're not saying insulin. You know, you should have insulin necessarily. Just let your body deal with it. But absolutely, that to me was the ultimate extreme of I'm going to take insulin to help my amino acid uptake. You know, and I'm just thinking, Jesus, this guy's going to kill himself if he tries something like that. So there are some very dangerous. Uh, concepts that people are they're taking some of these notions and taking them way so far to the extreme that it can be dangerous now you know one of those could be a very very high protein diet and as we just discussed maybe not as dangerous as some people would argue but but something like injecting a hormone is crazy (laughs) yeah yeah actually uh something i I was uh in some lectures yesterday and uh, we were Sort of talking about neuroendocrinology and uh, in particular as it relates to hypertrophy, and of course you've got this discussion of uh, you know what's what's more important the amount of the hormone or the you know the uh, the functionality or numbers of receptors um, it, uh, as it relates to proteins involvement in this. It, I mean, rather than simply just being a building block. Uh, if we if we look further than that and look at things like signaling, I mean, is there a relationship between the amount of protein, or, or is it a case of you need enough protein? Well, in the in the signaling context, the the right now, based on what what is known, the consensus seems to be that you know the signaling is part of the the response to the protein, you know, dietary protein and building muscle and, you know, adaptations. There's no question. Um, now, it, there seems to be a threshold of, in particular, it's thought to be leucine is the important thing. So you sort of need to hit a certain threshold for leucine in the blood, and that can 
maximize the response of protein synthesis. That that is the simplistic way to to think about it. Now, again, you know, readers need to think about this. You're you never don't have protein synthesis going on in your muscles. It's always happening. If not, you're dead. You know. I always tell my students that, you know, I always throw out there, okay, when do you not have protein census? And they always say, when you're dead. When you're dead, yeah. But because it's on. So what you do is you stimulate it. And and then, you know, so it's like a dimmer switch instead of a on-off switch, you know, as the classic uh, thing I learned way, way back about metabolism, you know. So, so, and so you can maximally stimulate that. That's not to say that a smaller amount of leucine doesn't trigger a response and you get a stimulation of protein synthesis. We know for sure that in, like for example, in Dan Moore's study in 2008, uh, you know, the dose study with five grams of protein, there was a really small amount of leucine, less than a, it's like half a gram or something, I think. And so that stimulated protein synthesis, not as much as more leucine. So, so it seems to be a combination of a trigger to help stimulate the, the response as well as providing the uh, substrate, the amino acids for substrate. So, for example, we've got some data, and we're, I'm working on the paper, and it's way overdue to be published, where we gave only branched-chain amino acids and looked at protein synthesis after exercise, and we see that we get a response, but it's not as much as that same amount of branched-chain amino acids if it was incorporated, if it was a protein, because you don't provide the other amino acids to help. So you can stimulate the, the trigger, the signaling, but then there's no substrate for that signal to it. You know, it's like having a, you can be building a house, you, you, you know, and you've got all the, you've got the guys to come in and you've, you've stimulated the, the builders, but then they look around, there's no bricks. There's not enough bricks. So they can only build so much of that house or so fast. The bricks are only coming in so fast. So, so you can think of it that way. You need both the stimulation of the signals in the muscle and you need to have the substrate available. Now, and Tyler Churchward Venn's published a couple papers on that, that that show that I think supports that kind of concept very nicely that yes, you need all those branch chain amino acids, you need the leucine, but to supply those alone without the other essential amino acids, you're probably not going to get your best response. And so you put all that together and again it comes down to I think some sensible things and that all these minuscule tricks that people are trying are probably overblown and 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 you know have a decent meal with protein in it when you get home and you're probably okay for for 90 percent of the people out there anyway yeah well i mean i know because i've experienced this myself before i learned from people such as you uh you know the true true story about this stuff but there, there is this common situation where you start to feel a bit of anxiety coming on because you didn't have your post-workout shake or you didn't eat the right kind of protein uh, in a given day. And especially if you, if you spend a bit of time looking into the more commercial side of protein and, and what's being pushed out there and you've got your, obviously you've got your sort of your, your milk dairy protein camp. But, of, but and the really big growth area, I think, of late, at least that I've been seeing, uh, maybe it's just some of the clients I've been getting lately, but it's very much this, this sort of vegan protein stuff. Uh, and of course, you, you do get people that, that can get a bit, 
they get a bit crazy about this and uh, it's a bit like the whole carbohydrate story that I was talking about to James you know people they get a bit upset they, they sort of get into fisticuffs over this stuff about how important biological value of proteins is and you know yeah well you know you're you're having soy protein well that's a total waste of time and anyway you're going to get some sort of cancer from the estrogen or whatever you know I mean there's there's all this stuff that that's going on but I mean it, it's probably not as significant as we thought really I mean what, what do you think no I agree I think I think uh, at the risk of you know going off into you know philosophy and whatever I mean you see this throughout every topic whether it's nutrition exercise politics you know whatever it the extremes are where people go and and then there's you know it's much easier especially with you know Twitter and other things where you can you can stake out your viewpoint and defend it and argue with people because you don't really have to sit there and have a discussion with them. I, I think, you know, maybe I'm just an old curmudgeon here, but, you know, it seems to me that there it's not so simple. We should have discussions about these things. And as you said earlier, I'm passionate about critical evaluation of research and understanding the limitations of the research and understanding how science works that we don't find out exactly everything all at once with one study whether a food is evil a food is good you know there's no such thing as an evil food or a good food somebody did did i think put something up funny that said when i said there was no such thing as a bad food they said well if you leave that out of the refrigerator long enough it, it goes bad and i said yeah okay there you go you know so, so i mean that's context that's a classic no, no, context that's right yeah. and that was meant to be there he was being humorous yeah. and that's that's absolutely true so so but but as far as like a vegan diet, yes, people can maintain and gain muscle on a vegan diet. There's no problem with that. Will they get as big as someone on a meat diet? I don't know. It, I think that the evidence kind of suggests that maybe they won't, or or dairy diet or, or eggs instead of meat maybe or something. But probably with animal products, it seems to be slightly better. Now, this whole plant protein push at least partially that's coming from this sustainability kind of notion where, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, it won't be me. It probably won't be, well, I don't have any kids, but, uh, you know, my nephew's kids and, and, you know, your grandkids might be the people that start having to worry about this. There's no way that we can sustain the amount of sort of beef that we're eating and with the numbers of people that are going to be around to eat it soon. You're a Texan. You're a Texan. No, 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 no. Hey, I have to live in Texas. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, if you were living here, would you be a Scot? Uh, well, I'm half Scottish, so. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, the point is I had to live in Texas. That doesn't make I me a I get you. I get you. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, although, you know, to be fair, Scotland and beef production in Scotland is pretty good too, so I suppose I shouldn't be bad. And I'm not saying that beef's a bad thing necessarily. It's just that. There's no way we can sustain the the production of beef and that that is going on now with the numbers of people that are going to be around in in you know 50 yeah. years or something. Yeah. So that's where that push is coming from is trying to come around with sustainable protein sources. Whether those proteins, those plant proteins, can re- result in muscle mass gains in in people who are lifting weights all the time as as much as say beef or whatever. Dairy proteins will. I don't know. Um, the evidence so far suggests that maybe not. 
but it's probably not going to be a huge difference. Yeah. I would suggest that very few people would notice if they actually did a proper experiment on themselves. Yeah. So, so it's really, as you said earlier, exercise is the key. And I think so many people want to focus so much on their, their nutrition. And I probably shouldn't say this being someone who studies nutrition, but the nutrition is important, no question, but it's important at the higher margins that most of these people who are getting into these arguments and fisticuffs, as you said, over these little tiny nutrition details probably need to work out harder. Yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, you know, my thing is I'm a nutritionist, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think we largely misunderstand a lot of this stuff. And um, whilst we, we do need to feed our bodies, you know, the building blocks, I think the analogy you used was, was excellent. You know, you, you've either got enough workmen to do the work but you've got a lack of building blocks for them to work with uh, or you're treating them bad or the lights are off or I mean there's all kinds of different ways of looking at it but of course if you don't you know if you don't train properly if you don't you know this like this all this business of difference between compound movements and bringing muscles to exhaustion and you know increasing lactic acid and the stimulation of growth hormone and testosterone all that stuff are all factors combined with genetics and a whole range of other things this is just one sort of one gear or, or cog if you like in in the sort of bigger bigger set of machinery but i think most people they, they just tend to get very pigeonholed into one thing at a time and for some reason or another protein is simplistically is what we associate with with muscle mass because it's made of protein uh, and they, you know they join the two together and think that, that that's all they need to do but of course as we all know it's, it's only part of the story so look let's, let's just go back to uh, something you just mentioned which I had raised um, about you and this this business of critically appraising studies and, and so on because much of what we're discussing um, whether it's how you're presenting the information that you and your your colleagues in the research arena are seeing things uh, or uh, the general public who get it from magazines, from Twitter, and so on. And of course, there's a there's a critical distinction between the quality of where that information is coming from, and even even when it's coming from researchers and, and scientists, there's good studies and bad studies. So, I mean, how do we, you know, how do we even critically appraise this stuff? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. I mean, it definitely takes practice, and that's that's one of the things. You know, I, I'm the the one of the modules I'm doing now is that's the main focus of that is teaching the undergrads that you just don't accept necessarily what somebody says in their paper and that you try to examine it now the main thing as you suggested earlier was that you want to look at the conclusions and are those conclusions supported based on the way that they did the study the methods and the design as well as the results and that of course takes some practice and some basic knowledge etc but but in general if you if you if you go in there and and the way i like to talk about it is be be skeptical but open minded on any particular study and so you go in and you say okay based on what i know and what else i can find out does this conclusion hold based and then given the limitations of the method so you know uh and and that's that sounds a lot easier than it is of course but but the the trick is even if you are going in and you're seeing a conclusion that that you might disagree with you know from a fundamental basis 
go in there and look at that study in particular and keep an open mind. And I'll give you a perfect example for me was back about 10 years ago when I first moved to the UK and I met, um, I don't know if you know, my, Nigel Mitchell, who he's yeah. British cycling, yeah. great guy. And, and he was very enthusiastic about some of his weight loss with his boxers. And he came to me at a conference and said, hey, I'm giving these guys and they're on a hypocaloric diet and, and they're losing weight, but they're, but they're gaining muscle. And I said, Nigel, you're crazy. That can't happen. And in those days, that's what most, most people thought. And Nigel, no, 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 it's not going to work. He goes, yeah, well, yeah, well. So he, I said, well, maybe you're right. Let's, let's, I'd love to do that study. And then so Nigel, of course, goes and comes up with the money, and, and we did the study, and that became this, uh, Sam Mettler's paper that we published a few years ago. And then it was and by no means was that the only study that showed this in other populations. This was in weightlifters, so uh, it was the first one in weightlifters. But other populations, you know, Stu showed it with some overweight women and Don Lehman's shown it with some people. And, and so, yeah, on a higher protein diet, you seem to, so I was, I was skeptical. I didn't believe it, but I said, let's check it out. And so you go and you do it and you, you accept the findings that are there, not the findings you want to see. And now that paper has some limitations. That study has some limitations. And so you got to take that into context and, and look at it. So, there, there are definitely limitations of everything. One of the assumptions we make when we study protein synthesis is often that uh, uh, that protein synthesis represents um, muscle mass gains over time. If you look at acute protein synthesis, now uh, Stu's group just published a study that shows that in individuals that's not necessarily the case. And and you'd think, well, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Why are we even bothering with this? Well, as as they said in their discussion, if you actually read that paper, it's not, there are other situations where it is predictive. And so you just have to be careful about, so if, if I were to do a study in a group of guys and, and we saw that on average they, they increase protein synthesis by 15% taking this supplement versus that supplement, that doesn't mean that they're going to get 50% bigger. That means that probably most people are going to get a you know have a slight advantage on this versus that, so you have to also not overinterpret the results and and take a you know take a step back from the literal the little literal interpretation of all these studies. Does increasing mTOR signaling you know by fifty percent mean that you're going to get fifty percent bigger because you've turned on the machinery with protein census? No, not necessarily. So, it, so those are the types of things that I think people need to to keep in mind and and to think about the population that's being studied. If if we do studies in trained people, as we've discussed earlier, will that response be the same in untrained? Will the response be the same in males and females? Will it be the same in cyclists versus you know weightlifters? I, I think. We, we have to, the, the way science works is you get these little bits and pieces of information and you start building a story together and, a, and then you, you try to, you as a practitioner then have to, the challenge of taking those little bits and pieces of information that we do know and then applying that to someone, as, I, as we discussed earlier, in their particular situation. And often we have incomplete information for you. And I know it's frustrating sometimes for us to go, well, we don't really know. 
but hopefully you'd rather hear that we don't really know and we need to look into that versus versus saying oh yeah everybody should do this yeah there's a there's a lot of people who think they know that's the problem though isn't it they sort of stand on their soapbox and go this is what we should be doing this is and it's it's sad because they they actually don't truly understand that we've barely scratched the surface and all this stuff uh, it's it's frightening the and especially uh, again with the growth of you know the internet blogs they're they're you know at least with a at least with a a paper that's published in a journal and not every journal sorry is it yeah i got an email sorry that's didn't mean right. to ding on there um you uh in a journal, you've you've presumably had a review, and so you've at least had a couple of reviewers that can go in there and say, "Wait a minute, you can't really say this based on what you're doing, or based on the the, the methods that you've used, etc." So, but in in um, you know in blogs, of course, anybody can say whatever they want, and with with no review, unless somebody gets into the comments section and says, "Wait a minute," but it's still out there. Now, not all. One of the other dangers I think a lot of people need to realize is that nowadays, with especially with uh, open access journals, not all of those are reviewed. And so, what one thing your re- your your listeners, sorry, not readers, your listeners can can do is when you go and look at a paper in a journal, what you can do is you can go down into it's either it's either usually under the abstract on the first page. Or maybe on the last page by the before the references start, and it'll say this paper was uh, submitted on a certain date and accepted on a certain date. Now, if if it's not in there, that's probably not a, a journal that's reviewed. If you don't have that information, it means it probably wasn't reviewed. Or if you see a date that's accepted that's only a day or two after it's been submitted, then that wasn't reviewed by, by scientists. There's no chance that anybody's, you know, had a good chance to go through that paper and, and written a proper review, and then the author's gone back and changed it. So go back and look at, and I can think of a couple of papers that I've looked on, and I go, you know, this is a day later when it was accepted. That means it was not reviewed. And so, therefore, I'm going to be much more skeptical about those results than if, than if, if I see three months later, because that means it's gone through a proper, you know, a couple of other scientists have at least had a look at it and said, yeah, okay, this is good, but that's, you need to change that or something like that. And I think, so, so, you know, be skeptical of papers that are published because maybe those reviewers, you know, didn't do a good job, but be especially skeptical of blogs and podcasts, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, just because somebody says it doesn't mean it's true, and just because I say it doesn't mean it's true, I'm I'm basing my opinion on, you know, my worldview and my experience. I like to think that I'm as open-minded as I can possibly be, but there's still going to be biases coming in, so everybody needs to look at it. But also, I would argue trust uh, the opinion of people who've done the research more so than people who are reading the research and interpreting it because they don't really understand the limitations as well as someone who's done the research would be my argument, whether they agree with me or not. Yeah. No, I look, I'm with you. I mean, the, the, the reason why uh, this podcast series is not some sort of uh, 
you know, ego broadcasting system for me. And in fact, uh, I'd, I'd like to make it quite clear, uh, you know, I'm not the expert here. I mean, I've, I've obviously been around a long time. I'm constantly learning. Uh, I've got guys like you and every guest coming on usually because they are the ones that have done the research that we've been reading about. And I want to hear, I want to hear you guys talking about the studies that you've done and, and uh, put a voice to that work and, and add that to the you know, to the sort of the public domain, because as you say, there's a lot of experts, quote unquote, self-proclaimed experts who are doing these, these, uh, these posts, these blogs, their blogs uh, and podcasts, but it's usually just them pushing their bias and their point of view. And, um, and I think that's a dangerous thing, because there are, uh, yes, people who understand that that's just their perspective, but there's a lot of people who think that that's just fact. Um, and of course it isn't and um, and uh, uh, you know it is thanks to, to like, at least as far as my podcast is concerned to guests such as yourself uh, I mean this is perfect segue because we've run out of time so uh, you know it's just another example of how long we can talk about something very small um, you know in the in the context of nutrition um, so um, I'm very grateful as usual Kevin for your insights and input and love to get you back on again at some point um either on your own or or, or with uh, or with someone else like like you did last time with Stu phillips it was brilliant and uh, i'd like to thank the listeners for uh, investing more time uh listening to these podcasts if you want to um learn more about uh, what kevin tipton's up to in his research you can always find uh, him at the university of sterling on their website and see what they're researching and so on if you're looking to study at the undergraduate or graduate level i know um uh, you have various programs that you're involved with up there haven't you yeah well we have uh yeah an undergraduate program of course in sport and exercise sciences um we have you know research uh, postgraduate students. Right now, we don't have a, uh, a, an MSc uh, postgraduate taught, uh, although that, I think, is in the works, um, so you might want to watch the space for that. But yeah, yeah there's quite, quite a bit uh, going on, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, well... That's, that's, we're always trying to get more good students. Absolutely, oh, yes. Well, that's a good thing is, uh, about this podcast. I've had quite a few people come back to me and say, do you know what... Uh, as a result of listening to your podcasts and or coming to the lectures on my program where, where they've listened to guys like you, uh, they didn't walk into the program necessarily thinking of going on to graduate studies, but they are now enrolling in master's degrees uh, or in some cases PhDs because of because of all this. So it's wonderful and it's just a pleasure to be involved um, in that process. So anyway, thank you very much for your time, Kevin. Um, uh, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, uh, just come and have a look at guruperformance.com where you can learn about the uh, existing. This is the 18th uh, episode, so there are 17 excellent episodes that precede this. Um, if you want to learn more about the uh, the work and the, uh, the research and the consulting that I and my team at Guru Performance do, you can see that at guruperformance.com. And of course, um, I also run a, a postgraduate program uh, called the ISSN Diploma, which is also about to become a master's degree, uh, I'm pleased to say. So uh, that's an option um, for many of the listeners, and you can learn about that at issndiploma.com. So anyway, 
Thank you. Um, this is episode 18 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. I am Laurel Brannock and I look forward to uh, welcoming you all back to a new podcast very soon.